A makeshift nursery and a truck maintenance shop at the Presidio was for a hectic 24 hours the first home for the 58 Vietnamese war orphans. Through the night, doctors and nurses tended to their medical needs. Their sponsoring adoption agencies and the Red Cross fed and clothed them, and immigration officials rushed them through the necessary paperwork to speed them on their way to new homes. By mid-afternoon, 31 orphans had been sent on their way. Immigration red tape was sidestepped by applying a sometimes used law that children under 14 be immediately allowed in the country for humanitarian reasons. Two children over 14 and several adults on the plane were given 90-day parole visas. But one official said they'll probably be allowed to stay in the U.S. These 17 children, ages 1 to 8, were jetted to L.A., where they were transferred four flights to their new homes across the country. It was a teary and reluctant leave-taking, but as one official pointed out, this is hopefully the end of a traumatic interval in their young lives, the beginning of a new peace. That was Isabel Duran, a reporter at KTVU San Francisco, reporting on one of the first flights of children to arrive in the United States in April 1975, as the North Vietnamese Army was encircling Saigon and a full-scale American evacuation from Vietnam was underway. Known as Operation Babylift, the young refugees on these planes represented a fraction of the innocent victims of the United States' failed Asian strategy to contain communism after World War II. Children were on those flights for different reasons. They might have been Catholic, in a country soon to be communist. They were orphans, being cared for by institutions that were evacuating staff. Or they were mixed-race children, fathered by long-departed American servicemen. Many were taken to airports and flown out in tidy boxes, strapped into commercial airline seats. Others, as we saw during the American retreat from Afghanistan in 2020, were shoehorned onto flights by desperate mothers who would not themselves be permitted to leave the crumbling South Vietnamese regime. On one of those flights were three siblings, two boys and a girl, all fathered by different African-American soldiers. Their mother, May, rightly believed that her children would not only be discriminated against because they were racially mixed, but because they were a visible sign of her own, probably necessary, collaboration with the occupiers. These children, Bear, Amy, and Peter, landed in Seattle with their belongings, where they were put on a red-eye flight to Philadelphia International Airport, and from there onto a van that dropped them off at a farmhouse near Doylestown, Pennsylvania. Waiting there are Bob and Cheryl Guterle, a white, Catholic, professional couple from suburban New Jersey who had watched the evacuation from afar and already contacted the adoption agency to see if there was a child for them. Bob and Cheryl had a dream, one that they had already embarked on, an interracial family that would enact their progressive principles, commitments that included anti-racism and zero population growth. Already, they have a natural son, Matthew, and his brother, Bug, adopted from Korea shortly after Matt was born. They know they want at least two more children. And on that April morning in 1975, Bob and Cheryl will take custody of five-year-old Bear, the same age as Matt. Bear will be separated from his siblings, for now. In fact, Bob and Cheryl Guterle would add three more children to the family after Bear. Cheryl will give birth to another son, Mark. There will be Anna, also from Korea, whose father was a white American serviceman. And last will be Eddie, from the South Bronx, 
left stranded by the collapse of his community from the twin epidemics of drugs and poverty. In their white house, with the white picket fence, in their white New Jersey suburb, Bob and Cheryl would raise the family of their dreams. And all the while their son Matt, known to other historians and his colleagues at Brown University as Matthew Pratt Guterle, was unconsciously starting to take notes on race and racism. This project would cohere after Bob's death, three decades later, when Cheryl gave Matt some large, dusty boxes containing the family's archive. The result is Skinfolk, a family memoir, a beautiful, complex book about racial identity, love, family, and the contradictions of Bob and Cheryl's dream, listed by the New York Times as one of the 14 books to watch in March 2023. Join Matt and me for this episode of Why Now, where history and politics meet the challenge of today. And I'm your host, Claire Potter, a professor of history at the New School for Social Research, co-executive editor of Public Seminar, and the author of the Political Junkie Substack. This is episode 16, The Sunlit Path of Racial Justice. Welcome to the show. I'm thrilled to be here, Claire. Thank you for having me. Can you give our listeners a sense of the overarching story that you're telling in this book? Absolutely. So I was raised into a multiracial adoptive family by two very idealistic white liberal parents who adopted children from around the world. Two of my siblings were marked as Asian, two were marked as Black, and I and my other natural sibling were marked as white. And we were raised in a big white house with a white picket fence in a very sort of idyllic little town. And everything was really sweet and very gentle until, you know, kids grow up and they leave the house and we entered the real world. And when we did that, it grew much more complicated, much more contradictory. And I try to make sense of what happened to us as we moved through life as a unit and myself as an individual until the point at which my father dies, uh, the sort of opening of the third act of the book, and our attempt afterwards to make sense of our lives together, and my attempt to make sense of who and what we are. Your parents were people of very deep faith. They also had a vision for intervening in American racism by creating an intimate multiracial space that was your own family. Tell us what it was about your parents that allowed them not just to have this vision, but to act on it almost immediately after you were born? It's a great question. My father was the product of a big New Deal liberal household in Jersey City. And his father, my grandfather, was a very passionate, inspirational principal at a local high school in Jersey City. And I think my dad inherited a lot of his strong will and his vision and his idealism from his own father. He and my mother both shared a very activist, very liberal slash leftist vision of what Catholicism could be and should be. And that definitely drew them together, this um, this you know, not quite a liberation theology vision of what Catholicism was, but something along those lines, something, you know, 
that speaks to the Marx and Jesus, if you will. They were also committed environmentalists. And I think that's the sort of third leg of the ideological tripod in which they built their vision for this family, was a commitment to a sustainable world, to a small population, to a diminished demand on natural resources, and to things, basic things like recycling and you know, caring for the natural world around them. Tell our listeners how your family grew. It started with you. You were born. And then who came next? My brother Bug arrived when I was about a year old. As I say in the book, I have no memory of life without Bug. Bug came from Korea. Uh, My younger natural born brother Mark came two years after Bug. Then my brother Bear adopted from Vietnam. The child of a Black U.S. serviceman came in 1975 when I was five. After that, my sister Anna arrived in 1978, 79. uh, And then our brother, Eddie, arrived soon after that, 1983. And Eddie is the only one of your siblings who was not an international adoption, correct? That's correct. Yeah. Uh, Eddie Eddie was adopted from uh, the South Bronx originally, or Westchester County. What was the process that your parents entered into to add children to their family? Sometimes there was a process and sometimes there wasn't. I think that's definitely one of the things I learned talking to my mother about this book. I, of course, have vivid memories of meetings at the table where we gathered to discuss the next potential adoption. And we're all rational actors sort of debating where we would like to adopt from and what kind of child we were looking for. But what I've learned is that at times the process was quite improvisational, that my parents wrote to Welcome House when I had just been born to look for a child that might be with me. And uh, we're fortunate enough to locate my brother, Bug. But other adoptions were more whimsical, or if not whimsical, they were improvisational. When Saigon fell and my brother, Bear, was one of the last children that brought out of that city, they ended up calling Welcome House just to see where those children had ended up. And we're so moved by his story to go out to see him uh, and then ultimately to adopt him. When uh, it came time to adopt my sister, Anna, my parents were filming a a television spot for a a local adoption agency in Philadelphia. And we're presented with a very real option to sort of draw out of them more impassioned responses and decided on on a whim to see if they could bring her here and to adopt her. Um, I'd be overstating it to say that there was a kind of intentional plan Uh, You know, the original idea had been to have sort of four children, and then that grew to six. The model of two of every race became a kind of inside joke uh, that my father and I had um, as as I was growing up. And it sort of doesn't quite map on exactly to who we are and what we call ourselves, but it, uh, it was nevertheless something that was on his mind. And your father was quite an idealist, right? Talk a little bit about his other commitments. Yeah, beyond his um, his environmental commitments and his political commitments, he was a jurist uh, and a lawyer, and as such was very much interested in both public defense work and family mediation. Late in life, he became a judge, and as such, he, uh, he had authority over a, a discrete group of justices in a vicinage in New Jersey. And really worked to sort of educate them on what we would now call the carceral state or the school to prison pipeline, purchased books for the state so that uh, judges could be educated on it, really imagined himself as somebody who was working in the vein of Lincoln and John Brown, right? So he 
read deeply in the in the biographies of great men and envisioned himself as somebody who was like them to a certain extent over the course of his life I could say with with reasonable certainty that he moved from being a devotee of Thomas Jefferson to being much more interested in John Brown. And in fact, for the last few years of his life, he was really sort of quite keen on reading about Ulysses Grant and John Brown and sort of men who had who had shaped that mid 19th century world where, you know, immediatism uh, and abolitionism were predators of, uh, of white radicals and, and liberals. I'm glad you mentioned that because I did get the sense from the book of your parents as people who were not waiting around for the world to change. They were going to change it and they were going to start with their own homes. And that is, of course, a very sort of 60s notion. People altered their domestic arrangements all the time to conform with their ideals and to try and make their desire for a new society known. Thinking about your mother... Where did she come in in this idealist vision? She worked a lot, but she also, you know, managed to make her way through graduate school while we were all in the house. Uh, got a master's degree, then uh, moved back into primary and secondary education, became a guidance counselor, and much more for the school system where she worked. She uh, she was, as I describe her in the book, the practical one. My father was a bit more of a high-flying idealist, and she was the person who would uh, ground his ideals in reality. Um, she was definitely the more present person, if that's the right way to say it. He, he worked very hard, as she did, and uh, had long hours and late nights for most nights of the week. Uh, he was just getting started as either a young attorney or, or later as a judge. And they were both very present parents, but she was the person who would read the nighttime story. Uh, and he was the person who was more likely to take a picture of her reading the nighttime story. So there's a there's a way in which I have all of these photographs and memories of us in which she looms large as somebody who's a caretaker and purveyor of love and affection. Um, but I have these photographs because he was constantly photographing the family and taking pictures of these things. There is this sort of pervasive sense in the first third of the book of the children being aware that they are being watched, that they are on display, but also having strategies to deal with that. Could you talk about that a little bit? To be honest, the writing of this book began when I was five. Like, if I'm thinking about when I first started to ask myself what it meant to be in the front yard of our house with all of us together playing, um, it started then. That was when we started to ask ourselves what what was happening and what was going on here. We had a big front yard uh, surrounded by a white picket fence and across the street was a general store where uh, many people coming through town would stop. And we often played in the front yard as kids do. Bear and I were almost exactly the same age. And we we would play catch or wiffle ball or football in the front yard. And you become aware very quickly when you're an integrated multiracial family of uh, what we would call, for lack of a better word, the white gaze, the eyes of the public on you, trying to dis- make sense of what you are and why you're all together. In addition to sort of learning how to play with spectators as a young family, uh, we also learned how to turn the gaze back on people. So there were all sorts of little hiding spots in the front yard that we would occupy and carve out for ourselves, including one in the front hedge. There was a, a long burrow that we built into a big front hedge so that we could watch people across the street at the general store or a tall tree we could climb where they couldn't see us and we could watch out uh, and see what they were doing 
as a way to sort of flip the script, so to speak. But it was a very self-aware thing. I don't think I'm overplaying it to say that that sense of being watched and being assessed and being uh, surveilled was a key part of our growing up together and certainly of my experience of the whole family. And on a certain level, and tell me if I'm wrong about this, as a young white person, you experienced being stared at as many people of color are often stared at by white people. Yes. I mean, I think to scale out even further, I think all people, especially teenagers, don't like to be looked at. And, you know, the sense of being an object of attention is one we all try to avoid at some point in our lives. But I I have to say that, yes, I, I felt often as if we were under constant surveillance and felt that keenly in a way that has continued to surprise me. Um, there's a there's a point in the book when I remember reading, you know, the very famous passage in Du Bois' Souls of Black Book, where Du Bois un- assesses and understands what the gaze is and what it means for him. And I have often thought about the ways in which that sensation was and was not similar for me. The way in which I was watched like the the proverbial black body is watched in public and was not uh, as a as a white body seen differently. But you are also seen as a collaborator sometimes. And and there's a particularly searing passage in the book where you and your parents and Bear, I think, are in New Hampshire and you ride your bike out and Bear says he's not going. And you are surrounded by other white boys who call you the N-word and talk about your brother and call him the N-word. And you're terrified and you think they're going to beat you up. And then you realize that they didn't beat you up because you're white. What was that like a child? In many ways, this book is filled with visceral memories. And so I have often been able to feel in a very sensory way what that day was like, to feel the the handlebars on my bike. I was on a BMX bike. It was a sunny day. To smell the pine needles. We were in New Hampshire. We were behind a strip mall. To sort of feel my heart racing in the moment when I was being chased. And, uh, and then to sense within myself the extraordinary contradictions of that moment where there's a racial epithet being hurled at me, but then withdrawn when I am encircled as if I'm about to be beat to a pulp. And then there's a pause as everyone recognizes that that I am I am not in fact a person of color and I'm released uh, and let out. And I have to say it was it was both a terrifying and unnerving moment all at the same time and and never really fully resolved for me. That that release did um, as much work on me in the longer term as did the chase itself the very weird contradictions of that moment where you feel like someone is literally about to grab you and hurl you off a bicycle. And then suddenly they're just like, well, just don't let your brother stay long. I felt bad for him. I was terrified myself. It was, I was embarrassed to have to repeat the story to my parents in front of him uh, because it meant repeating the N word, which I didn't want to say the very idea of abbreviating it didn't exist. And Um, you know, 1980. And I have sort of lived with that and struggled with that story since then. You know, back in the 1960s and 70s, we all used to talk about white guilt. It sort of meant what people talk about today when they talk about white privilege, a consciousness of what white people have, how we move through the world um, that isn't available to people of color. And reading that story made me think a little differently 
about white guilt, because that sense of being spared from the violence that you are quite sure that somebody you love would not be spared from is another whole register of guilt, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. I, I am I am completely convinced that, you know, as you say, had it, had it been Bear and not me on that bicycle, the story would be told much differently and it would be a much grimmer story. And I was aware of that in exactly that moment, like, a, a, you know, instantly, like a thundercloud, you just realize that could have been Bear and that would have been worse for him. I have survived because of my flesh, right? Because of because of the way I am positioned, because of the significations of my body. Uh, and to learn that at 10 is a hard thing in a way because it it structures the rest of your engagement with your siblings. It it means that you, you now recognize over and over again with a kind of heightened sensitivity exactly where you can enter and they cannot. And it attunes you to, to hear evidence of what you're calling racial privilege and to and to understand it immediately to know it and of course the key attribute of white privilege is the obliviousness with which most white people have it so that that obliviousness was was taken away at a very early early age for for the better i think politically like if you were asking me politically i would say that i wouldn't want anybody to be oblivious to this but as a child growing up it wasn't just for the better it was also you know, a part of, of my coming of age in a very um, complicated way. So you had this sense from a very early age that the world inside your family was one thing and the world outside your family was a far more uncertain place. How did your siblings respond to this dissonance? My brother Bear would always say that wherever my father was, he felt safe. And I think he really and earnestly believed that. I do think that they met with racism at almost every step outside the house. And I think that Bob and Cheryl, my parents, really extended themselves beyond the white picket fence as best as they possibly could to protect them. So when I, I think about growing up and I think about moments when in a crisis, a child calls home, and I think about what my parents did when my brother would call, uh, Bear would call from a bar to say that the police were coming in and were about to arrest him. That story doesn't sound to me very dissimilar from the kinds of stories that I hear from my African-American friends and what their parents did for them. That, you know, we all got to talk, but I was never in danger of a police officer cracking my skull open or, you know, throwing me in the back of a car and hitting me with a baton. Only Bear was. So what that meant was that in those moments where Bear was out at a bar or a club or at a party, uh, that my parents were always on sort of high alert, waiting for a phone call that might come and waiting to sort of spring into action. Um, and that meant sometimes that my father would get on the phone with the police, that he would call attorneys in the middle of the night, and that he could sort of enlist, I mean, I'm going to use an American studies expression of this, but he could enlist the racial state against the racial state in a very weird sort of way. Um, and sometimes it worked and sometimes it didn't. Let's talk a little bit about some of the complexities of your family, because it, it, turned out to be somewhat porous. Some of your siblings had other parents that they remained in touch with. Um, Bear for, came with his brother. And they were separated at Welcome House and sent to different homes. How did your parents manage that porousness? I think they they did so with surprising grace and eloquence. I, d I don't think that they had intentionally set out to create an open adoptive family. 
Bug, my first brother adopted, had no parental or familial ties that anyone could discern. Recognizing that we're now unlearning a lot of what we know about Korean adoptions in the 1970s. But at the time, Bug was presented as a child stripped clean of any attachments and therefore free to be adopted. Bear was different. Bear came with a brother and a sister. Bear came with a mother who was still alive, but in Vietnam. And um, all three of those siblings, you know, arrived in a small farmhouse in Doylestown, Pennsylvania. The sister had left before my parents got there. My parents met with Peter, Bear's brother, and and with the two of them sorted through their belongings. And after that, we were we were very much an open family in which Peter and Amy, uh, Bear and Peter's sister, were as much a part of our family as were any first set of first cousins, and in which their parents were people we knew very well. You know, I grew up uh, with Peter being an occasional visitor in the house. Uh, I lived with Peter and, and Bear in D.C. for a little while when I was a fellow at the Smithsonian. So that openness was encoded in the in the family, I think, without much thought. I think my parents were just big-hearted people who wanted to open the family in that way. When Bear and Peter brought their mother over to the United States, uh, we had several occasions to meet with her as well. And she she's an extraordinary woman. But I, I think as well about the moment at which my brother began to receive letters from his mother from Vietnam. And my mother and father both encouraged him to write back, you know, wanted him to share pictures. They wrote back to his mother as well, you know, shared their stories of bears growing up and what that was like for them. I think in a very receptive, very warm kind of way. And my mother speaks of bear's mother to this day with, you know, with great respect uh, as somebody who went through uh, something she would, that was, it is unimaginable for her. And she sees her as one of the strongest women she's ever met. Yeah. I mean, I actually thought that was quite extraordinary, particularly for two people like your parents who clearly cared about parenting as much as they did and loved their children as much as they did. The idea of another woman losing her child must have been unimaginably painful and and conflictual. I think so. I think my mother, you know, refers to that moment where she and my father had to sift through Bear and Peter's belongings as the most difficult moment of her parentage, recognizing that there was no way to bring them both. Uh, recognizing that uh, whatever their relationship was, and it was clearly very intense and very tight, that it would never be the same. She found in in May's return to the United States an opportunity to bring that family together in some way. And I think that was um, that was very moving for her. It was important for her. And did you know that Bear needed a brother very badly when he arrived? Because it seems in the book like the two of you were particularly close. We were. I mean, we were 45 days apart, roughly the same size and shape, so able to wear each other's clothes. As I disclosed in the book, Bear has always been a better athlete, um, better student, and um, in a wittier conversationalist than I am. And uh, and of course, as a five-year-old child, that's a terrifying addition to any family, is to be in, immediately overwhelmed by a better version of yourself. And so I was very grateful to have him, but also confused by my own um my own place in the family. My memory, as I say in the book, was that I was immediately a very generous host and gave all of my things to bear and welcomed him to the family. 
And my mother's memory is that I stopped speaking for several months and reverted to baby talk. I suspect some version of the both of these stories is true. So let's let's move on into middle school and high school, where really life gets a lot tougher and you end up being the white brother who has to listen to what other white kids are saying about his brothers and sisters all the time. You really struggled with that, didn't you? I did. You know, as I as I say in the book, I was frozen in place multiple times when people I considered to be dear friends and, you know, the closest of intimates would, like a switch had gone off, suddenly begin to talk about my siblings and specifically my my two black brothers using the n-word and revealing in the process that not only were they using it haphazardly but they had a sophisticated understanding of the representations of blackness in the world and that they were making differentiations between one brother bear who was an accomplished athlete and a well-regarded student and a charismatic uh, young man and then and, and the other brother eddie who who had a more troubled upbringing at this point. I will admit, Claire, that in hindsight, I I have often thought about going back in time and encouraging my young self to stand up and strike a blow for justice or you know flip a tabletop. But in those moments, uh, it was just so shocking to me that it, came, it was always coming out of left field that uh, I would freeze. And a part of the challenge of writing the book is that my most visceral memories of those moments are of the freezing and not really of much else like the the absolute sense of being petrified in that moment of not knowing what to do of uh, of recognizing that um, for these people this was a very perverse expression of intimacy they felt comfortable enough to be racist around me and uh and my uh, self-loathing that i couldn't get up and chuck them immediately and uh and the result was that my my memory is in my fingertips and so many of those scenes i just remember where my hands were and what i was touching and what it felt like and i would just sort of retreat into myself um deeply sounds really traumatic actually i mean no genuine trauma i would i i would say that of all of the all of the moments in the book or all of the parts of the book you know, my own encounter with my whiteness is the most dramatic part of the whole thing because it's not—it's not something that fits a script. I know what to do with, mm-hmm. um, and in in the, that particular scene that you and I are rehearsing, where where in a moment where where white people are talking and there's no person of color present, and and one white person reveals themselves to be a racist to another. That particular moment has repeated so often in my life, well beyond the scale of the book, that uh, I could have written a whole book about, you know, my white encounters with white people uh, and the very white things they say. That could have been the the sequel to this or the subtitle. Yes, I, I agree with you completely. I mean, it's been a theme in my life as well, particularly in universities and in college yeah. settings. Um, in which people who are with the program, nominally, you get them in a room together with no person of color present, and they say appalling things. Um, And the question of how you respond to it, I think there's no no formula for it, much less for for a teenager um, who is caught in between 
trying to be part of his peer group and being in his family. And, but, you know, it also, Matt, strikes me that what you experienced is what a lot of people of color experience in dominant white settings all the time, um, which is listening to themselves be talked about, having white people believe they're intimate enough to say horrible things to them. So how did that affect you? Um, You know, just sort of moving ahead to your choices as an intellectual, your education, the work you've committed to in the world, your own family. How did it affect you to know things that many white people don't know? I don't think I've ever thought about that question that way before. Do you think I'm barking up the wrong tree? No, I don't. I, I, it's just a different tree. I will say that this is not a, this is not a part of the book. So, so let me, let me just try to answer this question as honestly as I can, that for a long time, I struggled with how to think about myself positively because my associations with whiteness were all negative. You know, the only the only white people I knew who described themselves as white people were the ones who would secretly um, saddle up to me and and tell me something terrible about my siblings. Or they'd be uh, caricatured villains on television. And I was so attuned to sort of seeing their whiteness and seeing their their privileges, we called it earlier, or their position, that I came to loathe them. And in a weird sort of way, as an undergraduate, I had been a terrible student and was at a small school in the Pine Barrens in New Jersey. And I started to study, at the time, this felt like a, an innocent escape route. I started to study the Irish Renaissance, of all things. It was like a, a thing I'd never heard about. Yeats and Singh and all of these poets and the Easter Rising. And I was like, here, look, here are, here are white people who are doing things that seem revolutionary in some way, shape, or form. And they're figuring out who they are. And they're coming together as a people and they're they're thinking positively about the end of the British Empire. And they're trying to, to do all sorts of wild things. And I hung on to that for a little while until I got to graduate school. And then, to be completely and totally honest, I got a copy of a David Levering Lewis's When Harlem Was in Vogue. And the epigraph to the book makes an association between the New Ireland and the New Harlem. And it it reoriented me in some particular way. It helped me, it helped me to understand the ways in which these things were and were not alike and gave me a problem set, uh, a starting problem set to help me work through my own story and figure out who I was and what I was. Ever since then, I have always wanted to continue to ask questions that feel personally relevant, that don't put me in a box where my only associations are with people who don't care about the subject of race because for me it's been the, it was the defining experience of my childhood so i don't want to i don't want to move into another terrain and suddenly start to study something that's race neutral or race blind i i'm i'm invested in this as a question uh and as a problem set and i feel personally invested because of my siblings and i i can't imagine writing about or thinking about anything else yeah Yeah. Matt, I want to ask you ever so briefly about your brother, Eddie, who is the kid who kind of doesn't make it. And I remember thinking towards the end of the book, as Eddie is struggling more and more, how many families have someone in them? How many people have a sibling? I have a cousin who's in and out of prison all the time. A lot of families 
have someone who is struggling and is incarcerated. And yet the particular family that your parents formed put a kind of lens on Eddie that seems almost unfair. How did the family sort of wrap itself around Eddie to try to keep him with you? That's a a great question, too. You know, Eddie, uh, our youngest brother, is still, I think, someone we very much love and care about. Um, For my part, I do and and always will. You know, he's uh, presently incarcerated. That's not quite where the book ends up, but that's where he is today. He joined us at a moment where visions of what Black life were in the city, that those visions were were terrible and they were absolutely dystopian. So the popular representation of Blackness at the time, and specifically of Black urban youth, was one of super predation, uh, drug addiction, and, you know, burned out cityscapes. And my parents, and I suspect uh, all of us as children, really felt like we needed to be super present, super available, uh, super nurturing. And, you know, they they were um, within the context of that response, that very orthodox white liberal response to to Black suffering. And, you know, Eddie uh, is also a human, though, and makes his own choices. And Eddie comes with his own personal story. And his personal story is not that of cinemascapes or fiction. It's It's one of real life. And I think the challenge for parents and children, for a family that imagined that it was there to rehabilitate or repair or save a young child is that when that child refuses to be salvaged or repaired, it's unclear what we're all supposed to do next. I think that was definitely a part of our story, This the dissonance between our commitment to his salvage and repair and his determination to be whatever he wanted to be and to choose his own path, however off-putting that might be. He He ended up going down a path where he you know, engaged first in petty crimes and then slightly more major crimes and then in even more major crimes and moved swiftly from public schools to private schools to reform schools and then ultimately to prison in partial consequence. But it's also the case that I fully recognize that I made terrible mistakes myself as a young kid growing up and made all sorts of horrible decisions and managed, you know, without really much effort. The whole world seemed to swirl around me to lift me up and give me second, third, and fourth opportunities. And the only people who seemed committed to giving Eddie a second chance were my parents and my siblings and not much of the world around them. So it was, it's a, it's a tragic and I think traumatic part of the story for me is to recount the ways in which we, we felt like we could fill in where the world had stopped caring and uh, our attempt to fill in really created more problems. And I think back to something you said at the beginning of this interview, which is Bear saying that wherever your father was, he felt safe. And it seemed that Eddie never felt safe. No matter yeah. no matter what you did for him, he couldn't feel safe. And that is a sort of existential condition of being Black in America, isn't it? Oh, absolutely. And I don't, I don't think, quite frankly, he ever was safe. Uh, you know, whether he, even if he hadn't felt safe, that's the, you know, he, he, by, by sheer good luck, managed to avoid any violent encounters with the police, um, or any sort of mob violence from whites, 
he's a small guy, but he's a good if plucky fighter. So he was always able to stand up for himself. And he had a kind of legendary big brother to look out for him too. So, and and by the time he arrived, my father was a, an even more prominent attorney and then later a judge. So there was a significant protective apparatus that surrounded him. But it's only by by luck that he didn't run into some circumstance where that apparatus failed and he wasn't, you know, shot to death or or beaten to death. And it's still a matter of pure luck that he's with us today. Toward the end of the book, your father dies. And I get a sense, and this happens in many families, of a kind of unraveling. All of you having to rejigger your relations to each other. And at a certain point, I think it's Anna, your sister, rebukes you um, and perhaps some of the other brothers for being racist in her presence. And you're shocked by that, that, that this had never been spoken before. Um, so can you talk a little bit about how that sort of unraveling once your father is gone, when people are speaking to each other without him there to really mediate, what did that feel like? He was able to manufacture a sense of humor about race that made it very easy for us to talk to each other. So so race became something that we played around with in the house quite a lot. And we were quite comfortable joking with each other in ways that we would never have joked um, outside the family. So again, there's a kind of reproduction here in miniature of exactly the experience that I had with my white friends in high school uh, was that within the within the context of the family, I was that white kid. And there's a moment at which after my father passes where I think we were we were we were recalling a Christmas gift that had been given to Anna by my grandmother, who had a habit of giving all of the boys very expensive gifts and giving my sister um, morally questionable makeup kits, uh, in part because she seemed to think that my sister was that kind of woman. And we were we were and, you know so it would be like a leopard skin print print house dress or a, a 57 flavors makeup kit or something like that and we would be joking about it and and using kind of uh, racial language the sort of the image of the invoking the image of the geisha uh, and thinking about the ways in which Asian women are themselves so serially um, sexualized in in contemporary American life and for the first time she she called me on it and not just called me on it but but basically called all of us on it and asked us to sort of stop stop imagining because we were no longer in the house together in the way that we had once had been and we were all now spending far more time away from each other than we were together as a consequence the we the the thing that had held us all together the house the family had fractured and frayed and it no longer felt like a sibling it now felt like a white guy saying something to her in a way that's the the challenge of the book was to recognize this what was for me the fundamental tension between the way we referred to or represented larger groups outside the family and were brought together and the way in which we could unintentionally hurt each other and the way specifically in which I could unintentionally hurt my siblings. I think that's actually one of the great lessons about whiteness that the book delivers, which is regardless of how much you learn, regardless of how much you feel, regardless of 
how much you want to be anti-racist, there really is always something more for a white person to learn. And if you can learn that, then actually you are a little bit freer to be intimate with people of color. I mean, at the moment that incident happens in the book, I am I am a 31-year-old man. I am a professor in an ethnic studies department. I have a book that's just about to come out on blackness and whiteness and scientific racism in the early 20th century. So I'm not I'm no longer just a teenage kid right. sitting with his friends. I'm a fully formed adult person already teaching this material to younger people and I'm still learning. I'm still in that moment I am I'm a 10-year-old kid again, still learning. That, of course, would be a great place to end, but I'm going to end somewhere else, Matt. Um, (laughs) I always ask my guests this final question, which is, why should our listeners read this book now? I think there's no easy answer for why we should read anything right now. (laughs) It's a very weird moment. Um, But I'll, I'll, I'll say this, that so much of this book is a consequence of the last several years the decision to write it, the decision to sort of look in the mirror and think about who I am, who we are, and what we are together is really a reflection of where this country is now and what lesson this antique little family has to impart to a country that's kind of torn in half, uh, if not in four or five different directions. I really struggle with, with what kind of lesson to impart these days. Um, I I continue to get people who ask me what I think about integration. Uh, We don't really have a sustained public conversation about integration any longer in the way that we once did. Um, And instead, we have um, a profound attraction to segregation, whether it's political, social, or racial. And we don't really have a serious conversation about international or mixed race adoption. And I continue to get people who trot out photographs of you know, a distant adoptive sibling or cousin as if to prove their progressive bona fides. And I wanted to ask people to remember the power of good intentions and the consequences of them in a family that was built out of pure idealism uh, and fell apart because the world wasn't interested. That's it for today's show. You can go to the Political Junkie Substack at clairepotter.substack.com for show notes and to listen to more episodes, leave a comment, or ask a question. You can subscribe to Political Junkie for free, which gets you one newsletter a week that may or may not include a podcast. Or you can pay as little as $5 a month to get every podcast and every newsletter delivered straight to your desktop two times a week. You can also participate in subscriber chats. You can subscribe to Why Now on Apple iTunes, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. Please leave a rating and a comment so that other listeners can find us. Please share this podcast with a friend who loves history, politics, and smart conversation. Why Now is supported by the New School for Social Research and by paying subscribers to Political Junkie. 
Why Now and Political Junkie are written, recorded, edited, and produced by me, Claire Potter. Show notes, technical assistance, and research are by Emma Kern. My opening theme is by Galaxy News, and my closing theme is by Avocado Junkie. You can find both of these terrific artists on soundstripe.com. That's all for now. I'll see you next time.